0: The State Department announced on Friday that Princeton Lyman had passed away at the age of 83. He served as the U.S. ambassador to South Africa during its critical transition from apartheid to democracy from 1992 to 1995. He also served as the U.S. ambassador to Nigeria and was President Obama's special envoy for Sudan and South Sudan. He was a peacemaker and a well-respected global diplomat. In January, 2017, he came on the podcast to discuss his life and career as a diplomat. And our conversation remains one of my favorite episodes of this podcast. So we wanted to bring you this episode today in memoriam to Ambassador Princeton Lyman. My guest today, Princeton Lyman, was a long-serving U.S. diplomat who's become one of the leading experts on African politics and policy in the United States government. He most recently served as President Obama's special envoy to Sudan and South Africa from 2011 to 2013, but before that, he had an extensive career in the Foreign Service that included stints as U.S. ambassador to Nigeria and to South Africa during the negotiations that led to the end of apartheid and the election of Nelson Mandela. And we do have an extensive conversation about his participation in those historic negotiations. We spoke the day that news broke that Donald Trump was readying an executive order that would severely curtail refugee resettlement to the U.S., including from a number of Muslim majority countries. Princeton served as the top U.S. official for refugee issues during the George H.W. Bush administration, so we kick off discussing how those potential restrictions fit into the history of U.S. refugee resettlement policy. We, of course, then pivot to a longer conversation about his life and career, including his rather unique first name. It's a good story, a classic one, actually. All right, here is my conversation with Princeton Lyman. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Eslanyan from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: Now, we're talking about resettlement into the United States. And I think it's important to know that our refugee programs are predominantly overseas. That is, our support through the UNI Commission for Refugees and other organizations for the uh, now 20, 25 million refugees around the world. But we bring into the United States, and the number varies each year. A select number of people. That process is important to know. It is one in which the administration each year goes to the Congress and proposes an allocation of refugees from various different countries. And depends on the situation at the time. So, for example, when I was head of refugee affairs, a very large number were coming from uh, Vietnam. Uh, people who were boat people who had fled uh, the, the Vietnam regime, uh, the children of soldiers who had served in Vietnam, etc. A large number were Jews coming out of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So it varies by the situation and and the interests of the United States. Now, coming to this question of new executive orders, I think it's important to know that in urging an international response to to the refugee crisis in the world, it's important that every country, every major country be seen doing its share. We do a very large share of the humanitarian assistance without question. But also, it's important because some refugees do need to be resettled out into the West or other countries. And it, it's a fairly small proportion of, of refugees that require small, this we do third uh, 50, country resettlement. 70,000 a year maybe mm-hmm. from the, to the yeah. United States against because, tens of millions of refugees. Because the expectation
0: is most refugees will either return back to their home country or remain in the The country to which they fled and not require that kind of third country resettlement, right?
1: Exactly. And those who are selected by the UN High Commission for Refugees to be considered for that kind of third country resettlement takes place first. Then we go through a process that can take up to two years or more of vetting those who uh, we would bring to the United States, and that would be within the quota that we present to Congress each year. Mm-hmm.
0: So this this Trump administration proposal, and I, I should stress that we are speaking before the executive order has actually been mm-hmm. signed, but uh, we know from news reports that it will likely ex- include, uh, among other things, the um, sort of ban on refugees from a select number of Muslim-majority countries. So that kind of ban based on national origin, not, say, need, uh, or, or, or the status of whether or not someone is deserving to be a refugee, has that ever happened in, in, your, in your knowledge?
1: Uh, no, we've done it on the other side, that is we've given special emphasis to particular groups like the uh, Jews coming out of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. We had uh, special <clears throat> rules that enabled us to process them faster, but I am not aware of any restriction like this. And the problem with that kind of a restriction is that you're moving away from individual needs and eligibility um regardless of religion uh, someone may be fleeing because their life is in danger mm-hmm. if they either stay in the camp or have to be returned so it changes the way we approach the 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 whole concept of refuge mm-hmm. and of resettlement so
0: so let's t- take a, a step back could you in 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 sort of your mode as like a, a former U.S. diplomat, explain what what's the the either strategic logic of of having a refugee resettlement program? Like, why is this considered something that the U.S. ought to do, or is it simply like a, a moral issue that is just the right thing to do, and we're a big country, or is it a combination of the two? Like, why do we have a refugee it's, resettlement it's, policy?
1: It's a combination of the two. First of all, because being part of an international effort to deal with the refugee issues. If we don't take some share of the third country resettlement, how can we ask other countries? Europeans are taking many, many more. Uh, When I was working on uh, Vietnamese, uh, it was very important that other countries were also taking some of the boat people who were genuine refugees. So part of it is, is to get the kind of international cooperation you need. Second, there is a moral issue here. People who need that kind of uh, third country resettlement are people who really have a political need for asylum. And finally, of course, there's a, there's a that's a moral question. But these people come to the United States and they make marvelous contributions. I mean, I I get called. I got called by uh, an Iraqi refugee who traced me down years after I had I had helped open the door for him to get here. And he was a doctor in Tennessee, and he's settled and he's contributing to his community. And and other people in the refugee business get those kind of calls. Uh, so many. Many of the refugees are are major contributors to our life in the United States, so we benefit as well because we 're bringing people here who have not only a need but many of them have great talents uh, to contribute um, so th- the numbers
0: that we 're talking about are in the tens of thousands if if this ban is in fact yeah, um, right. um, implemented. So, what sort of like international uh, effect might this have? What sort of consequence might this have uh, around the world? The fact that the United States is no longer willing to accept these uh, refugees from these countries—is there likely to be any significant knock-on effect?
1: Well, it depends on 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 exact the details of it. If this is a temporary freeze until the the administration is satisfied with the vetting process and the damage won't be so long. Uh, So great. If it's a permanent one and we simply will not cooperate, with helping people from those countries then i think it will have an impact on our getting the cooperation we need from other countries uh to deal with those needs uh and uh that i think will will be costly because this has to be a shared responsibility
0: Um, I would love to switch gears now and learn more about you. You have been on my radar for a long time, mostly regarding and related to your work in Sudan and, and South Sudan. Um, right. but I'd like to to turn the page back a little bit and learn more about you. So, where are you from? Where were you born?
1: Born in San Francisco, California.
0: Great okay. city. Okay. Okay. Uh, what kind of family were you born into? You you have a very distinguished well, name, I, I must say. Is, is well, do you come from like aristocracy? No no, no no no
1: no no, 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 no it's aristocracy my parents were immigrants from lithuania uh they both met in the united states they met in boston then my father came out to san francisco opened up a grocery store brought my mother out and they got married and um and uh i, I grew up working in that grocery store um, so how did the Princeton
0: come along? Is they, they, well, they wanted you to, like, see, have it's, a, it's of American, a classic
1: yeah. case of, of immigrants with high ambitions for their children. Mm-hmm. My brothers were named Yale, Harvard, and Stanford, and my younger brother named Elliot, and a sister named Sylvia. But, you know, when you're named Yale, Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, you know your parents want you to go to college. They want you to be professional. They're going to work in the grocery store, and we all worked in the grocery store. But my parents were also very practical. We were all named after, not all, most of us named after very expensive schools, but we all went to the University of California, oh, good. Which, okay. was, uh, which is a fine, wonderful university, but not nearly as expensive uh, as the ones we were named. Named after,
0: so that I mean that, that's that's a great I mean that, that that is such like a classic immigrant story too I, I I love it um what I guess growing up the child of immigrants with such these ambitions did you have a a, a sense that these expectations uh, for a better life that there's like a heavy responsibility on you personally to to, to live up to your parents' expectations
1: uh i think we did you know and 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 you know my eldest brother yale was kind of the beacon for the family and i think he felt that responsibility and we all keyed off of him the way you often do in a family so uh what he studied uh, uh we would study in high school when when he went to berkeley we went to berkeley when he joined a fraternity we joined the same fraternity so you know we were all kind of following in, in, in his footsteps and in what our parents expected from us. And, um, and of course, we were happy to do so because, frankly, I hated working in the store. <laughs>
0: um, so how – was it in, in college that, that you sort of developed a um, – appreciation for international relations, international affairs. I mean, having grown up, of course, the the child of immigrants, you're exposed to different cultures and different worlds. And obviously, San Francisco is is a pretty vibrant uh, and diverse place.
1: Well, I think we, it was, uh, you know, uh, I grew up uh, in the beginning uh, during World War II. So, you know, my parents we listened to the news all day long uh, they talked about we followed the war uh, so the the whole sense of be of the world was very much on everybody 's minds and also San Francisco uh, had a had a, had a large Asian community, and so my initial interest overseas was also toward Asia. So uh, by the time I was in high school, I had pretty much decided I wanted a uh, an international uh, career. Were, were you um, aware or like politically
0: aware during the San Francisco Conference of, of 1945 that gave birth to the United Nations?
1: Actually, I was. I mean, I was uh, 10 years old. Uh, but it was such a big thing. And of course, it was so exciting for San Francisco. And when I go back to San Francisco, um, uh, I often go over to uh, uh, the park across the bay where there is a plaque where, if you know the story, uh, many of the delegates went and put a plaque there pledging themselves uh, to peace. Uh, so, yes, it was a big thing. Yeah, I was I, I was there for
0: the 70th anniversary. There were a whole bunch of celebrations uh-huh. there, like Ban Ki Moon and Nancy Pelosi and the governor, and, and a whole bunch of of, of folks right. were in San Francisco at at City Hall commemorating the 70th anniversary uh, a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah, it was it was it was it was very
0: momentous. So so initially, your interest was in in Asia. How did you I guess first um, start to pursue those interests professionally?
1: Well, when uh, you know, I graduated from Berkeley. I went and took my Ph.D. at Harvard, and at Harvard I did my Ph.D. on U.S. policy in Southeast Asia, particularly alliances and how alliances worked in Southeast Asia. And then uh what, right what after what did gradu- you what or- did
0: you posit from your uh, PhD at the time which was what probably in the ni- early 1950s or It 19- was
1: in uh, 1961 was when I graduated when I got my degree. Mm-hmm. It focused very heavily on Southeast Asia, the coming war in in, in there. I didn't uh, the, the Vietnam War hadn't hadn't grown to the proportions it would later, but uh, I pointed out the nature of the alliance, so it's called the SEATO alliance. And that uh, probably would result in a bigger war in Vietnam. Unfortunately, I was right. Um, but that was the focus. And I had taken other courses in Asia and China history, etc. So when I graduated, I came down to Washington. And I took the Foreign Service exam. And intended to go into the foreign service, but ironically, given my later career, uh, after I passed, they said, well, everybody's now going to Africa because all the African countries are becoming independent. We're opening up a lot of em- embassies. Uh,
0: that's yeah, because this is like the time of, of rapid independence. Rapid decolonization in
1: the 60s, Nigeria and Ghana and, now, and all those countries. Oh, so and all I of thought, a sudden. Well, see, I didn't, I didn't want to yeah. do that. Yeah. I had just finished four years of graduate work on U.S. policy in Southeast Asia. So instead of joining the State Department, I joined USAID. Ah, okay. Because Uh, that's just so interesting.
0: So all of a sudden, they're opening all these embassies that they needed to staff, and so they're drawing people whose expertise are not necessarily in Africa to to staff them, just because they need, like, warm bodies in, in the seats, it seems.
1: Exactly, exactly. And later, of course, that would become the focus of, of my career. Yeah. But at the time, I was you know, very lucky and very lucky throughout my career to have some important mentors. Mm-hmm. The person who hired me into USAID was Jim Grant. Uh, Jim Grant, you U- know, UNICEF, went on to yeah. become one of the great uh, leaders of UNICEF. Yeah. In fact, I had uh, an
0: episode a couple of years ago in which I interviewed his biographer. Uh, there's ah, this, this biography yeah. came out of, of Jim Grant. He led UNICEF. He's most famous. I, I should add for, for people who are not, not aware for introducing like this child survival revolution. He introduced this concept that you could actually vaccinate, um, children in sub-Saharan Africa and the developed world and increase survival rates dramatically. He probably saved like millions and millions of lives through uh, his work at UNICEF for 10 years in the 1980s.
1: And he also introduced the concept of the humanitarian pause in conflict situations, where besides would stop fighting in order to go in and vaccinate children? That wasn't Herbert uh, Hoover
0: back in, in World War One. Not to get too nerdy, but I, oh well, maybe yeah.
1: maybe yeah. <laughs> it goes back then. But Jim introduced it in the wars in, in Central America. But we remained friends. We traveled together in what is now Bangladesh within East Pakistan. So I was very fortunate, and I went to work for the Far East Bureau of uh, of USAID. And and that led I was supposed to to go to Vietnam, but President Kennedy changed the ambassador and the aid director. They froze those appointments, so I went to South Korea. That was my first overseas post. Mm-hmm.
0: And and what was your first uh, posting to Africa? Because where, where where you said you you spent most of your career, and, and you're known as like an Africa expert these days. Uh,
1: my first posting was to Ethiopia. I was a USAID director to <clears throat> to when i came to the africa bureau of usaid i worked in washington in the bureau for, for a few years and then i went to ethiopia mm-hmm. as the usaid director
0: was that the first time you ever set foot in the african continent
1: no because when i came to work in the uh in the Africa Bureau in, in 71, and for five years I was based there in Washington, and I traveled to quite a few countries in Africa. What was the, the first, first
0: country that first
1: you visited? One, what was your first experience? Uh, first one was Tanzania, and, uh, uh, but then later, not short a- shortly afterwards, I traveled up the coast of West Africa, uh, going to Cote d'Ivoire, to Togo, to Liberia, to Ghana, et cetera. Uh, and then later traveled to Nigeria, to Benin, uh, to Niger, and a number of other countries in that capacity before I went to Ethiopia as and, a and director.
0: I guess what sort of programs back then was USAID running? I mean, USAID was created what, by, by the Kennedy administration, right? So It was
1: created in 61. So right? it was
0: only like 10 years old at, at the time. What, what sort of programs did you have going on the ground?
1: Well, it's very interesting in, because of the uh, growth of independence in Africa. We had large aid programs in a country like Nigeria, uh, but uh, because of a major drought in the Sahel region of, of Africa in the early 70s, uh, we, uh, expanded our program throughout the Sahel. We had a big special appropriation and we expanded our programs in places like Chad and Senegal, uh, and, and, uh, uh, uh Mauritania, et cetera. And, and I'd spent a lot of time on that. But in those days, we also did infrastructure projects, which AID stopped doing uh, some years later, uh, road building, et cetera. Yeah, so we had a, have that a fairly... Today. They, they, they do a lot of that today. So uh, we had a, a fairly broad-based program, agriculture, health, hmm. uh, etc. The big programs were Ethiopia, uh, Nigeria, uh, uh, and Kenya. But the Sahel program, I worked a lot on because that was a major international humanitarian focus.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you, your first big, uh, job, you said it was, was in Ethiopia. Um, what, what kind of work did you do in Ethiopia?
1: Well, much of it was humanitarian, drought-related. Because uh, uh, I got there after the emperor had been overthrown. Mm. Will you describe that uh, that history I, I a little was, bit for people I, who are unaware? The, you know, the mm. Ethiopia Haile Selassie had been the emperor for some 40 years. He had been, become famous in uh, a, a, when the, a, Italy uh, uh, invaded, and he went to the League of Nations and. And the League of Nations didn't act. It became a sign of the weakness of the League. But the emperor was overthrown in 1975 by a Marxist military uh, regime. And when I arrived in 76, our relationships were going downhill with that regime. The one area in which we did work was on humanitarian drought-related assistance. So I did work with the Relief Commission, uh, traveled up to areas that were drought-related or disease-related, but it was a very difficult period politically, and we couldn't do any longer-term development programs.
0: Because they were mostly allied with uh, Russia, the Soviet they Union had, at that time, right?
1: Alliances switched. We had been allied with uh, Ethiopia, uh, which then controlled what is now Eritrea. We had a big naval communication station in Cagnu. Um, And the Russians were were allied with Somalia. And after the uh, overthrow of the emperor, we switched alliances. Uh, They, and with Cuban presence as well, uh, became the base. Major ally for Ethiopia, and we became an ally of Siad Barre in in Somalia. So the time I was there was a very difficult one politically. There was a lot of street violence. We had six o'clock curfews. Uh, my my house was shot up uh, one day. So we Wait, were you in your house when it
0: was up shot up? There.
1: No, but my family was.
0: What 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 um, happened? What's that was, story? Uh,
1: it was uh, uh, a businessman who just went crazy with the uh, with the uh, uh, harassment he was getting, and so Ethiopian forces came and they had a big shootout. And because they were shooting back and forth across the street, uh, we took six bullets. Bullets into the house. My wife was on the phone with the embassy during that time, so it was a it was a, a difficult time, uh, and there the were areas we couldn't travel to, etc. Um,
0: how much? I mean, it, it seemed like that that era, like the nineteen seventies and eighties, and, and um, you know, most of foreign policy around the world was seen through a Cold War lens. Um, I guess was the same true in in Africa at the time, or was it was it sort of a little perhaps less acute because it's more of like a tertiary or secondary foreign policy priority for the United States.
1: No, it was. I mean, certainly the Ethiopia Somalia situation, which carried on into the nineteen eighties. Uh, was very much Cold War focused, uh, no question about it. Uh, Later when I came back and went to the State Department as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the 80s, our relationship to Sudan was very much Cold War oriented. Uh, The whole question of uh, Cuban troops in Angola, uh, fighting in Angola, became a major political uh, Cold War kind of focus. So a lot of our, our programs and policies in Africa were, were influenced by the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, and so where where did you
0: end up uh, after, after Ethiopia?
1: Well, I came back to Ethiopia. I took a special assignment at the White House on science and technology. Uh, President Carter had the idea of creating a science and technology institute. Unfortunately, it was not supported in the Congress, and I was a bit in limbo at that moment. Uh, neither fish nor fowl, and then got a call from a colleague in the State Department who said, wouldn't you like to come now to the State Department? They knew I was a political scientist and interested in policy. And uh, again, mentors matter. Uh, Phil Habib, who was one of the great, great diplomats of the 20th century, he had been the political counselor in, in uh, Korea and we had stayed in touch. He was under secretary for political affairs, I was offered by AID a job in Paris, that nice, attractive job as liaison with the uh, OECD and an office director's job in the State Department. So I went to see Phil and he said in his inimitable way, are you interested in foreign policy? And I said, yes. He said, then you go to the State Department. (laughs) So I went to the State Department and uh, I'm, I'm glad I
0: did. Um, and, and so I know you, you've worked in, in several different bureaus in, in the State Department, um, but also served as, um, you know, in, in, in top posts in, in Africa as well. While you're in State Depri- the State Department, I mean, did people start to lean on you for your expertise in Africa? Like, when, when was it that you started to be seen as someone who was kind of like a, a Pan-African specialist?
1: Well, I think, uh, uh, it started when, uh, when I moved to the Africa Borough of USAID and did those development programs around the continent and then served in Ethiopia. But then when I came to the department, when, uh, Ronald Reagan was elected and Chet Crocker became assistant secretary, I became a deputy and I spent five years as a deputy to Chet Crocker. So I had then, by then, uh, you know, some, 10 years of working, uh, almost exclusively on Africa. So I guess I, uh, by then was pretty much known as an Africa specialist and, and then went mm-hmm. on to be ambassador to Nigeria. So, so
0: how did that uh, appointment, uh, come? Cause that was probably your first ambassadorship, right? It,
1: it was, you know, for a long time, I was on a reimbursed detail from AID, even though I'd, I was now six years into the department. Um, But it came about because our ambassador to Nigeria um, had gone out there, a wonderful, wonderful man, Tom Sniles, but he became ill after a year, and the post suddenly became open. And uh, Chet Crocker had asked if I would want to be ambassador to Nigeria. I said, of course. And uh, that was my first ambassadorial appointment, and and a major one. Yeah, I mean, and, it, it is
0: the the most important, biggest, vib- most you know, most populous economic powerhouse of of the region by you know by far. I think like yeah, today. I, I don't asked, know if this is the case today, but t- today one in every six Africans is is Nigerian.
1: Yeah, I had passed up an offer to become ambassador to Liberia. But when the Ethiopia offer came up, I, I grabbed yeah, Nigeria, it. I yeah. mean, when the Nigeria offer so, came up, I grabbed it, and and it was a very good time to go to Nigeria. Um, yeah, what were the politics at the, at the but, time?
0: So, so what was the the politics at the time? It was before Obasanjo, Ola right? It was uh... Uh, it
1: was before Obasanjo, it was uh, Baba Gita had come to power through a military coup the year before, overthrowing a previous coup leader who is now president of Nigeria, Muhammad, uh, uh, uh Buhari. Uh, 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 Buhari. Yeah. But anyway, and was the president. Uh, and we had a good relationship with Gita because he was uh, w- uh, really understood economics, and one of the major questions was economic reform in Nigeria. Uh, he was also, we collaborated uh, closely on West Africa issues and a number of other issues. So it was a good relationship, and we thought at the time that he would gradually move it back to uh, democratic politics after I left that they came that fell apart, mm-hmm. but it was an exciting time. So, we didn't have a big aid program anymore because they were big oil producers. But it was a it was a, a very exciting time to be there. So I mean,
0: I, I, I wonder though. So so he you know was you know pro American. You, you, I guess you said you saw him as, as sort of a, a technocrat, even though he came to power um, through through a, a coup. I mean, did you have ever have like any any sort of like moral qualms of, of interacting with someone and who? Um, though as a convenient partner, was not necessarily a a Democrat.
1: Well, I think that's a good example. I mean, uh, uh, the regime, uh, obviously, it was a military-run regime. All the state governors were military, etc., so you didn't have free political activity. But it wasn't a terribly oppressive regime either, Mm And so uh, we didn't have a lot of human rights concerns, we had some, uh, and of course we wanted to see it return to democratic rule. But in terms of economic reform policies, he began a, a reform program that we very much thought was on target, uh, and I was able to open up some trade uh, and investment possibilities. Uh and on you know, on on uh regional matters uh we cooperated quite well. So it was um, uh, a good relationship. I got to see him one on one on a number of occasions, uh and and to do some work in the health field through our aid program was the only really aid program mm-hmm. we had. Um, so it was, I thought, a constructive, positive relationship. Unfortunately, his regime took a a, a very negative turn in the 1990s, but I had left by then. Um, so at, at what point did you become
0: uh, ambassador to, to South Africa?
1: Well, when I left Nigeria, uh, the State Department had nominated me to be ambassador to Kenya, but the White House chose someone uh, politically, a uh, political appointee. I was offered the head of the Refugee Bureau, and so I came back to Washington Mm -hmm. and did that for three years, and it was a very rewarding uh, assignment for all the reasons we've talked about earlier. Uh, and, you know, it was a worldwide assignment. We did a lot of work on the Vietnamese refugees, on the Afghan refugees in Pakistan, um, the, the uh, uh, refugees from Cambodia and Thailand, uh, and as well as the number of African refugee crises. But as things were changing in South Africa. Uh, I did make it clear that I would uh, very much like to be ambassador to South Africa. And fortunately in 1992, I was supported by the department and by the White House.
0: So wh- by by the time you were, um, uh, it was probably the Bush White House, right, in 1992? It was that, uh, that
1: H- George H.W. Bush. Mm-hmm. And uh, I received my appointment in 1992 the election took place that year. Right. President Clinton came in. There was some question as to whether he would like to put a political appointment there in my place, but in the long run, the decision was made not to. So I was. Well, how, how do you think that out. decision?
0: Because this is arguably from nineteen ninety two to nineteen ninety five is the most important right. and pivotal moment in recent South African history. You had the transition from apartheid. The the, the their first national elections, which elected Mandela, was what nineteen ninety four. So this was obviously, like, a crucial and historic and pivotal moment. Um, how do you think that decision was made in the White House to keep you as opposed <laughs> to sending a, a a political appointee there? Because it's just, like, it's interesting to me, like, how these decisions are made, who gets to be political, because typically, I mean, these days, the South Africa Post is a political uh,
1: appointee. It is and has been off and on most of the time. Uh, I Look, I had strong support from the State Department who said, look, you've got a, a career professional there. Uh, this is not time to change it. He's established doing a good job. Um, one of the candidates they asked to be and um, would be, be interested, a political person, said no, keep Princeton there. Uh who that? Another candidate, uh, I, I won't mention uh, that name. Uh, And another one said no. He declined as well. So the State Department made a strong case, and I had support from outside the department. So the White House finally agreed, Mm. and I stayed on.
0: So so, I mean, you know, that that just must have been just such like a a profoundly impactful and and important experience. I mean,
1: um, had you met Mandela before that assignment? I had not. uh, I had been to South Africa on occasion, but I had not met met him, and he only had come out from prison a year earlier. But I met him very quickly after I got there. What was that uh, Because we were in the middle. It was 1992, and the negotiations had broken down. Uh, uh, just before I got there, and it was a whole question of whether violence was going to get break out. So even the even the, the clerk government said no. Even though you haven't presented your credentials, you can start working. So I went to see Mandela quite soon. Uh, we had a What was a that first and, meeting like? Was uh, it was a, sort of it was a, it was a very interesting meeting. Uh, I was very concerned about threats of, of, of further violence. But he also made clear to me something very interesting, that President Bush had been someone he admired very greatly. Uh, that he had called him often, that President Bush would call him before he made a decision on on South Africa, uh, and it was interesting and and that and became important later on uh, that he wanted me to know that he had a great deal of admiration for President Bush, and of course President Bush was then uh, still president uh, and then we we talked about uh i had to there were the us was under suspicion from both sides uh, not so much from Mandela himself, but many in the ANC held a grudge against the United States for, in their view, coming slowly to the anti-apartheid
0: side. Because well, cause during the, the Reagan administration, when Bush was vice president, you know, the, the U.S. was kind of hostile to the ANC, believing a, a, them to be a, uh, a sort of a,
1: a, terrorist
0: organization. a terrorist organization that's sympathetic with uh, the Soviet Union.
1: Right. So there was that resentment. The de Klerk government uh, was resentful because of the sanctions that were passed over President Reagan's veto. And uh, later, when President Clinton was elected, they were sure we would be totally unsympathetic with the issues of the government side. So it was my job to establish credibility with both sides. Uh, and I make a point of there's a difference between credibility and neutrality. We weren't neutral about apartheid. Apartheid had to end under the negotiations, mm-hmm. but we could be credible in terms of legitimate interests that both sides might have in the negotiations, and that so, was that was what I tried to establish.
0: So, can you give me an example? Like, how do you establish credibility? Like, what what does that well, actually look like? Well.
1: Well, it means a lot of 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 transparency of what we were doing. I always informed Nelson Mandela of meetings I was having. If I went to meet homeland leaders, for example, I went to see him first. I said, I now have approval from Washington to talk to the homeland leader of a Botswana or I'm going to see Buter-Lazy. Uh and and I will come back and tell you. What what what's coming out of those meetings. With President de Klerk and, and with his negotiators, uh, I would go over issues with them where I thought they had some legitimacy and in, in what they were looking for. I worked very hard to keep the hotheads in the ANC from attacking more of the homelands, and I had Mandela's support for that. So you try to show that you are working toward a peaceful outcome that does indeed lead to a democratic South Africa, but which doesn't do uh, physical or other major damage to the the white population or to other elements in in the society. And you try and do that through what you say, what you do, how transparent you are, what kind of assistance programs were giving to the for I'll give you an example we sent uh, a group of officers from the South African military force and the ANC's mk military force together on a trip around the united states to talk about civil military relations uh, we sponsored uh, seminars on the, what would be the economic policies of a new democratic uh, uh, South Africa. So it was a, and we put a lot of emphasis into helping on the elections in 1994.
0: So was there a moment, or what was the moment, uh, when you realized that these negotiations would in fact be a success?
1: I think the. There were two key things that happened. One was a tragedy, the assassination of Chris Haney. Chris Haney was head of the Communist Party, but he was also probably the second most popular person in the ANC. Uh, he was a kind of a, a hero to the youth. He was close to Mandela, and he was shot down in a white suburb by 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 uh, some white fanatic, and it brought the country really to the edge of of really widespread violence. Mandela could barely barely contain it, but what it did break the logjam on setting a firm date for the elections and a time uh, a time. Uh, uh, table for bringing it to a head up until then, it was long negotiations they had been going on for 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 two years, and people were getting frustrated after that, they set the time for the elections uh, and and the process moved ahead. The other critical point was bringing uh, uh, budese and and his party into mm-hmm. the elections. And, and, and can, can you, you explain who, who right. Budalese is? Well, uh, Mangosuthu Budalese was the head of uh, a quasi-autonomous homeland. He did not take independence like some of these other little homelands, which never had international recognition. Mm-hmm. And he was very much an anti-apartheid person. But he, uh, when Nelson Mandela came out of prison, there was a real deep rivalry between them. Budalese had been kind of the darling of, of people in Europe and the United States who wanted a non-communist uh, alternative to the ANC. So Budalese had supporters among Republicans in the Congress. He had supporters in London, et cetera. And then he became eclipsed by Nelson Mandela coming out and becoming kind of the recognized leader. But it became more violent than that. The ANC and the and his party were 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 at, uh at uh, uh, killing each other in his province and around Johannesburg. And he would not accept the constitution that was being negotiated. He wanted a looser constitution, like Mm -hmm. the Articles of Confederation, which would make him almost quasi-independent and -hmm. was unacceptable. And it would have been disastrous if it hadn't been at the very last moment through a long, complicated process that he finally agreed and came into the election. Uh, And then we, we were pretty sure it was going to come off. But I have to tell you, the morning of the election, because the real question still was, would the security services really allow this to happen? And on the morning of the election, there was a bomb explosion at the airport. And the question was, what would happen? And what would happen was security forces immediately wrapped up the the group that had done it, and then I knew the elections are going to come off. Huh. Um, I, we're just about out of time, but if you have a
0: Sorry. few more minutes, I would sure, love sure, to sure, to sure. talk Sorry. about Sorry. Sudan. And, 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 no, no, this is great. I, you know, I, I I let you go because I love these stories. <laughs> Um so if you have a few more minutes, yeah, I, I would love to learn how you got involved in, in Sudan and in, in South Sudan. I know we're we're fast forwarding a, a little bit to the two no, thousands, uh, but that's
1: fine. But when I, I when I know I came this is back how you from, came on my, my radar, Very so. quickly. Yeah. Uh when I came back from uh, South Africa, I became the assistant secretary for international organization affairs. Madeleine Albright was our representative of the UN and then later Secretary of State, and I focused very heavily on trying to get Congress to pay the billion dollars uh, that we owed to the UN, and we got a, an agreement, and Richard Holbrook later got, got it through. But I then retired from the State Department in early 1999, uh, wrote a book on South Africa, and then became um, uh, the head of the uh, Africa program at the Council on Foreign Relations, occupying a, a chair there, the Ralph Bunch chair. And while I was in that position in 2010, uh, I was asked by Johnny Carson, then the Assistant Secretary for Africa, if I would come help on the Sudan situation, because Sudan, under the 2005 peace agreement, was to allow South Sudan a vote on self-determination in January 2011, and there was a great deal of concern that the referendum wouldn't come off and therefore the civil war would resume. So I was asked to
0: back up for a second. There was this 2005 peace accord that set the terms for South Sudan to become an independent country from Sudan, but that required a referendum.
1: Right. Well, there was a six year period in which they would test whether there was a possibility of, of unity. And then after that experience, South Sudan would vote stay in the in the country or vote for independence. Mm-hmm. But as we got closer to 2011, people began to be very worried that Sudan wouldn't allow it. So I was asked to come on and assist the then envoy, Scott Gratian, and I focused specifically on getting the referendum through. That meant working with the commission, uh, working hard against government efforts to undermine the the referendum commission and solve a lot of problems.
0: In in that position, did you ever sort of negotiate or speak directly with Omar al-Bashir?
1: No, not allowed to. Mm-hmm. And when I became the envoy, when Scott Grayson became ambassador to Kenya in the spring of, of, of 2011, I became the uh, envoy and I continued in that for two years. We continued not to have direct contact with the president, which obviously changed the nature of our role in the whole peace process mm-hmm. Because we couldn't be in the lead if you're not talking to one of the major decision makers. And and so the we reason quit-
0: was was presumably because he had been indicted and is wanted by the international he criminal been court for gen- genocide in, in, in Darfur. He had been indicted by the
1: international criminal court for genocide and war crimes in Darfur. So in
0: retrospect, and, I mean, do you wish that that um, that indictment hadn't come down? Would it have made your job easier, or or would it have enabled you to be more successful in your goals?
1: Let, let me put it this way: Clearly, I would have been able to do more directly on the negotiations if I had access to the president. But I uh, I understood why we didn't do it, and what I did when I when I came on is that I reserved the right with the National Security Council that if I ever thought that talking directly to the president would be absolutely critical to finalizing the peace between Sudan and South Sudan, I would ask for that authority. I never reached that point because there were risks in doing it. And so it meant, however, and I have to reiterate that to Washington, that we had to rely on the leadership of the Africa Union negotiator Thabo Mbeki and others who could talk more directly to the president. Mm-hmm. Um, that
0: that's interesting. I mean, it's it's just like a, a, a almost like a debate, right, in, in foreign policy circles, whether or not right. like direct engagement with a you know person responsible for genocide is, is worth it, you know, in, in the end. And, and that's interesting. Why, what would you have had to have given up if you were to meet with him directly?
1: Well, there were two risks. One was uh, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't get what you wanted, that is, key agreement on key issues. Or two, that it would have been used as propaganda. See, the U.S. is walking away from the ICC indictments. So you had a risk in what would come out of such a meeting. And and of course, people who were concerned about genocide, et cetera, would have been very upset. So the question was, in my mind, was this absolutely essential? And even though it made it difficult working with the Sudanese government, and they resented the fact that that I didn't deal with the president, other Western governments didn't either, we were able to work through enough working through Prime Minister Mellis of Ethiopia and Tabo Mbeki and others uh, to eventually get a full, well, almost mm-hmm. full agreement on the issues. But it did make it difficult. You know, it's the same issue I had in South Africa. How do you become credible with a government over which you not only won't speak to its president, but you have a lot of sanctions on as well? And that took a lot of effort.
0: So South Sudan did eventually become uh, an independent country in, in 2011,
1: um, and collapsed into and, civil
0: war, and collapsed into civil war three years later. So, uh, what what's your sort of prognosis, or why do you think, after having you personally, you know, you know, uh, um, um, helped give birth to this country, uh, how did it sort of dissolve so so rapidly, and and uh, like how much? Sort of personal, not responsibility, but but um, personal angst. Do you feel over I feel, what happened?
1: I feel an enormous amount of personal angst, and I think there's a, a lot of responsibility to be shared by all involved, by the Africans, by most of all by the leaders of South Sudan, but also by those of us in the West, etc. I think there was an awful lot of of sympathy. Uh, in the advocacy community and within the administration with the South, with South Sudan, so that there was a reluctance to criticize them for when they were doing the wrong things. I think we could see when I was still envoy through 2012, that this was not a democratic regime, that they were harassing NGOs, harassing journalists, Etc. was the the subject of my last trip out to South Sudan in December 2012. Uh, They were committing violations against minorities. Uh, This was not going to be what so many people hoped a, a democratic regime. That it would descend into the kind of civil war that it did, I, I can't say I, I saw that coming. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, we all of us involved uh, all around, and I've written on this in, 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 in somewhat extensively lately, uh, have to think about the responsibilities. But more important now mm-hmm. is that there's a peace process that is very weak, and and that needs to be strengthened.
0: Did you ever personally, um, sort of experience that reluctance to, to criticize South Sudanese Absolutely. leader in, in retrospect? Absolutely. Like what, was there Absolutely. like a moment looking back where you wish you had done something stronger or, or not given in to that reluctance?
1: Well, uh, it was hard. For example, in the end, what we had to do, whenever you issued a public statement criticizing the South Sudanese, you had to first lard it up with criticisms of Khartoum, because you could never just criticize South Sudan. So you always had to start with all the evils. And of course, Sudan had a lot of evils, but you always had to start in there and balance it in order to clear uh, a, a statement. It was very frustrating. And even when we did criticize them, you got a lot of flack from the advocacy community. Uh, I remember one man, uh, one leader of a group saying, you've committed the sin of moral equivalency. There is no thing that South Sudan could do that are equal the terrible sins of Sudan. Well, that just wasn't true. Who said that? And, and uh, I won't tell you. The leader wow. of a major group but the point is Does it, rhyme it, with it was in, it was inhibiting it took a long time for people who were close and that includes people in the administration as well as outside to recognize that these weren't angels these um, were not just poorly uh, taught they were not democratic
0: um, so, in the last minute or so, can you let me know what what should we look out for you in the future? I know you're at USAIP right now, um, USIP right now. What yeah? What, what 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 kind of work? What kind of research are you doing? Um, how should we uh, follow your work?
1: Well, I've done a lot of work on Sudan, South Sudan, and and I've just published, I think, the the longest piece I've done on what happened. What I call the tragic denouement of the peace agreement in the, in a volume of African World Politics, sixth edition. has just come out. I do a lot on Sudan, South Sudan. We have a, a Sudan group here at USIP. But I've been, uh, working, uh, here on Nigeria, uh, and on the whole question of how Regimes uh, can transform from 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 autocracy to democracy without war. Uh, uh, I've done a lot with the government in Sudan. I traveled to Sudan itself uh, uh, on that and, and working on other issues of peace and conflict. I'm also on the board of the National Endowment for Democracy and work a lot on programs of democracy worldwide. Well, Ambassador
0: Lyman, thank you so much for your time. This was great. It's fascinating.
1: Well, thank you very much. It gives me a chance to reminisce a lot.
0: Well, Ambassador, rest in peace. And thank you all for listening. I so appreciated the time that, that we spent together and the stories that he shared about his really amazing life and career. I will see you all soon. Bye.